You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. When they want to know about God, the world does not read the Bible. When they want to know about God, you want to know what they read? Christians. This is the last week of this Ancient Rhythm series. We're going to talk about evangelism and story uh, today, and I've thought and prayed a lot about how to kind of get into this one. And um, The first Christians were storytellers. It's just what the first Christians were. You see it in the New Testament. And so I thought about how to kind of get into this one this week and how to structure it. And I think what we're going to do is I'm just going to tell you some stories. And we're going to be in God's word a lot. And then I'll give you some tips at the end. You guys cool with that? Good. Not like you can do anything about it anyway. I'm up here. (laughs) Here's the first story. Everybody knew who she was, and that's why they avoided her. She wasn't easy to talk to. She wasn't easy to be around. She knew it, and she hated herself for it. Behind her eyes, she held a life's worth of pain like a dammed up waterfall. There had been five, five men, five would-be companions who would sit with her, walk with her, talk with her. Five hopes raised and then five hopes dashed to pieces, broken and blown away in the dry wind, just gone. Five times she had allowed herself to believe stupidly that she could be loved. Five times the word forever fell out of her mouth recklessly. Five times she had believed them when they said for life and five times she woke up to an empty bed. And now there was a sixth and she knew it probably wouldn't last. She knew what he wanted and ideas like life and forever were not it. She heard that people in town had a word for her now, and you know the kind of word it was. That wasn't who she was. Not really, but she couldn't blame them. Maybe they were right. She had become dry inside, a burned-out husk of a person, cracked, spent, used up, and dried out. It was noon, and she had come to the well, Jacob's well, a place named after a man with a family, Liquid Legacy. The other women from town had been gone for hours. She wasn't likely to run into any of them. They came in the morning when it was cooler. She had to come later. Was that penance? I don't know. Turning the corner, she saw a man. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. It's pretty bold brash, a little ironic, and a little unfeeling. What's he up to? The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaritan? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up for eternal life. Oh, metaphor. Okay, I'll bite. Sounds too good to be true, though. Water without the walk, sustenance without shame, refreshment without remembrance. What's he talking about? Was he just playing, or is it something else? The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. But then he puts his finger on the invisible nerve. Delicately, deliberately, decisively, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You've had five. And the one who you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Well, whoever this guy is, the word has clearly gotten out He's heard about me. He isn't any different than anybody else. But maybe, maybe he hasn't heard. Maybe he has like this hidden gift of perception. Maybe he can see through to the thing that I try so hard to hide. Maybe he wants me, but he wants me differently. How to find out. Test the water. Switch the subject. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Arguments about worship style, centuries old, fascinating. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know. The hour is coming, is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Ah, a theologian. I might have known. Those guys are always a little out of touch. A little weird. But his voice isn't stuffy like the priest's. He's not condescending. And so in her heart, hope rises and brims, held in tension like water holding the top rim of an almost overfull glass. One more drop should do it. Woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who's called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And her imagination floods and fills again with hope. What does she do with this nerve-touching, metaphor-slinging, theology-dropping prophet 
The woman left her water jar and went away into town and she said to the people, come and see a man who told me all I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? Could this be? Could it be? Could it be that my life is not what it has been made to be or what I have made it to be? Could it be that he could make me something else? This is the interpersonal story and here's what you need to know. The gospel says that you are not what life has made you. The gospel says that you are not what you can make you. The gospel says that you are what Jesus can make you. You are worth his time. You are worth his conversation. He wants to meet with you to touch that invisible nerve that we all have that needs healing. He wants to talk about sin so he can talk about salvation. He wants to bring life and newness to the dry and dusty places of your past because there are villages of people waiting to hear what God has done for you. And like you, they're not looking for all the answers. They're just looking for a savior. This is the gospel, Jesus changes everything. Impetuous. <laughs> he had been called impetuous before. Impulsive? Well, maybe, but somebody's got to go first, right? He thought with his mouth open, like a lot. But if they can't handle honesty, that's their problem, right? <laughs> He was a fisherman in business with his brother, his younger brother. <laughs> he liked the simplicity of fishing. Fishing was predictable. Fishing made sense. The rooster crows, you get up, you fish. You lay on a net, you wait for a little while, you haul it in. What's complicated about all of that? It's hard work, but it's the kind of work that doesn't take much, what's that word? Faith. He could follow his gut. He could trust his instincts. He could do things his way. No mystery, as long as you stay on top of the waves. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, <clears throat> casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. He had heard about this Jesus, but he had always thought that he had gotten to the point where he was too old to be called alongside a rabbi. But Jesus had an urgency in his voice. It seemed like somebody he could probably follow. He had a big vision too, that whole fishers of men thing. Not really a plan, just a promise. And so heavy nets slip through wet fingers, folding and falling on the sand. Fish will always be there. Time goes by. Months later, it's midnight, same lake. He knows the ways of the water. He has sailed this sea for years. He knows the shoals and the sandbars. He could see them at night blindfolded. And it's a good thing too, because it is night. And the other 11 in the boat are looking to him for leadership. He kind of liked that. <laughs> the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to him walking out on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. Okay, Jesus, what is this about? What are you doing? What's going on here? Is that really you? How to find out? Maybe a little test. Validation never hurts. 
Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. He said, all right, come on. And Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was freaked out. And he began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. This one day rock sank like the pebble he always thought that he would be. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It was a question without an easy answer. And for the first time in his life, he opened his mouth and there were no words. (laughs) Time goes by. He was hurting because he had believed. At least he tried to believe. Jesus was arrested for blasphemy, and so he retreated back into himself. He sat on the sidelines, the place that he never really liked to be, but now he felt maybe he had to be. The courtyard was lit by a small fire. He walked closer to warm himself, and a girl he had never seen eyed him curiously. Seeing Peter warming herself, she looked at him and said, you are with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out of the gateway and a rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say with the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, the bystanders said again to Peter, certainly you're one of them. You're a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself. And he began to swear I don't know the man of which you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you're gonna deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Collapsed implosion. Time goes by. (laughs) Back to the sea. Why was water always the place? (laughs) Jesus had died That was sure. He had risen. That was sure. But there were still questions. Like, what do we do now, Jesus? Where do we stand? And where do we stand? (laughs) Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Whoever this was, he didn't need to rub it in. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple that Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. Why does faith always taste like a mouthful of seawater? The other disciples came out of the boat, dragging the net full of fish. They were not far from land, about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. The last time he smelled smoke was in the courtyard. Very clever, Jesus. This is the wavering story, and here's what you need to know. 
The gospel says that Jesus can handle all of your volatility and your insecurity and your instability. The gospel says that Jesus wants the real you, not the one that you put on your resume. The gospel says that you don't have to get everything right, but you do have to come to Jesus and let him change you. He will save you from your boring life oriented around your private little self-kingdom, and he'll turn you inside out so that other people barely recognize who you are. Make no mistake, your new life in Christ will absolutely cost you your old life of self. It's 100% worth it. This is the gospel. Jesus changes everything. They'd stuck a label to her years ago, 12 years ago. It was a label that never came off. She hated it, but she understood. Everybody should know she was infected and she was unfit and that she was somehow wrong. One by one, she saw her childhood friends make their choice, either friendship with her or friendship with God. The hopes of the family, out of the question, out of reach. As for worship, she hadn't approached God in years. She couldn't. She knew what the law said. She wasn't dumb. Her body, her bed, her clothes, anything she touched. If by some accident she brushed up against someone in a crowd, 24 hours of forced quarantine for them, years of loneliness had solidified the story, God can't be around you. And the invisible label that hung over her like a shadow unclean. Doctors couldn't help her. She always got the impression they didn't really want to anyway. The priests, forget that idea. The God that they preached about always seemed out of reach. And so misplaced hopes had left her poor, alone, further away from a cure. And then one day, she had heard the reports about Jesus She came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. For she said, if I can touch his garments, I will be made well. Too afraid to approach from the front, too aware of what other people might say, too intimidated by the 12 men around him. Were they his guards or something? Too many times let down. Still, she's determined and she's desperate, bold enough to summon bare belief. She thought if she could just touch the edge, that would be enough. It had to be the faintest of a fingertip. If Jesus was Messiah, it would have to be maybe the scratch of a fingernail on a clove. Maybe that would be enough. It had to be. He doesn't need to know me. He doesn't need to see me. I don't need his kindness. I just need this to stop. And then it happened. Immediately, the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She knows before anybody else does. Almost everybody else. It had happened. And so now to shrink back and let the crowd continue around her, leaving her behind. She would stay behind, happy to be healed, happier to be anonymous. But then... Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? She knew what she had done. She knew it was her. It was all gonna come out. She could feel the fire of their judgment eyes searching and scathing. Where was she? She could hear their words begin to form sharp, about to cut her again. How dare she? 
But his words were not an accusation to run in fear. They were an invitation to come forward in faith. So she comes forward thinking, it's just a matter of time. I might as well get this over with. It was me. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. I didn't mean to stop you. I didn't mean to touch you. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to presume. I didn't mean to bother you. <clears throat> didn't mean to touch you. And now you can't go to the temple, and it's my fault. I'm sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And then he looked at her. Looked at her like he really saw her. Not with the dismissiveness of distance or the cold protectiveness of position. He said, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Daughter. She hadn't heard that word in a while. Faith. She had pinned all her hopes on him. Didn't he regret it? Wasn't she an inconvenience to him? Saved. I didn't even do anything. Didn't he want to get paid or something? Go in peace. Peace, the shalom word, like the way God intended things to be, be healed, it's all over and done. The crowd, silent. This is a desperate story. And here's what you need to know. The gospel says you are not who you think you are. The gospel says you are not who others tell you you are. The gospel says you are who Jesus says you are. And he won't let you go unseen. He won't let you go unchanged. He won't let you slip away into the unknown. He wants to restore the dignity that the world has ripped away from you. He wants to rebuild everything broken that life has torn down around you. He wants you to reach out so that he can look you in the eyes and save you finally, fully, and freely. There are crowds who need to hear about your perfect imperfection. And they may not understand it, but that's okay. Because in the end, you won't need them to. This is the gospel. Jesus changes everything. Things were just a little, I don't know, complicated. <laughs> He was the kind of guy that never really fit in anywhere. Never really had a home, never really had his people. He had a good job, and I mean, that's a good thing, right? But that was kind of part of the problem. He had been made who he was so that he could have the job that he had. He was the object of another's action at a very early age. It was a protective measure to preserve the purity of the royal line. Really? <laughs> he repressed the memory of when it happened as a boy. He was very young. But the deeper pain left a wound that would never heal. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south on the road that's down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, seated on his chariot, and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. First thing he saw was a man running up to him he never met before, full speed. There was unexplained desperation in his fast footfalls. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. 
Do you understand what you are reading? Strange introduction from a strange person, but a fair question deserves a fair response. So he asked, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with them. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep that was led to slaughter and like a lamb that before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And humiliation, justice was denied to him. And who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the, the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I asked does the prophet say this? About himself or somebody else? Good, simple gospel. Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him all the good news about Jesus. Jesus, a savior who aligns with the lonely, who sits with the suffering, loving the loveless that they might lovely become. Jesus, the missing piece, the connected dot, the blank filled in. Jesus, the Nazarene, he had heard about him, recently crucified and rumored to be risen. Jesus, but then it gets personal. Could this Jesus open his arms wide enough for me? Because I've never been included before. And everybody knows why. Could this Jesus risk his reputation for somebody like me? Because they've all told me he wouldn't. Does this Jesus have a place at his table for someone like me? And then, it just had to happen. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, look, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. Kept away because of a choice that he didn't make. Pushed away because of a reality that he couldn't change. Silenced by subterranean fears and everything left unsaid. But now, confessing Jesus as Savior and Lord, welcomed home, wide arms. Now, because of Christ, brought inside, given a place, now seated with him, secure in him, satisfied by him. This is the unexpected story. And here's what you need to know. The gospel says that Jesus decides who's in and who's out. The gospel says Christ alone makes foreigners into family members. The gospel says that Christ alone makes those to fit who don't have a place to fit. So don't change yourself. He'll take care of that. You start with a savior who suffers for your sin. You lay your fears at his feet and you take your questions to the cross. You run to him. You trust in him. You lean on him and you rest in him. You let Jesus make good on the promises of God because he has, he is, and he absolutely will. This is the gospel. Jesus changes everything. Strong, immovable, rock solid, unbreakable. That's how others saw him and that's how he saw himself. In truth, again, that's how he got his job. Cold callousness was kind of one of the qualifications. You couldn't do what he did and have a soft heart. You wouldn't make it very long. He had been put in charge of two Christians, new arrivals. Just yesterday, those guys were in court. He knew that. The judge had ordered them stripped naked and beaten. 
So having been giving them as a special assignment, he took them to the inner prison and locked their feet in shackles. He didn't ask questions because he just didn't care. He had to have a hard heart. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Some people just don't know how to keep their mouth shut. (laughs) And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. I've heard a lot of chains rattle before, but they've never done that. This was my post. This is my job. This is the only thing that I was responsible for. And when the jailer woke up and he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. That's it. I'm done. I've got nowhere to turn. I've got nowhere to run. There's one way out. There's only a few seconds of pain, and then it will all be over. They're going to think it was murder, because I don't know how to break like this. Then Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself. We're all here. What strange mercy is this? What's to be made of a prisoner who stays once freed? What's the lesson in all this? Is there a deeper quake happening in me? (laughs) The jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. Good because I miss my kids. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into the house, set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Is this what Jesus does? (laughs) Frees us to serve plates of food instead of shackles for feet, softens us to care for the ones that we never cared to think twice about, moves us to bind the wounds of the ones we once wounded, rises up inside of us to sing the songs that once annoyed us. This is the catastrophic story, and here's what you need to know. The gospel says you are not unbreakable. The gospel says that you are not immovable. The gospel says that everyone, absolutely everyone, shakes and quakes at their feet of Jesus one way or another. And so you can harden your heart if you want to. You can project whatever kind of image you like. There is one place to place your hope, and it isn't your job. There's one place to rest your security, and it isn't yourself. There is a rock that's stronger than you are, and you can rest on him or you can break on him. But you have family and friends and neighbors and coworkers who need what you need, an actual, real, abiding, vivid, vibrant relationship with the risen Lord Jesus and he will break whatever he has to break in you so he can build whatever he wants to build in you. This is the gospel. Jesus changes everything. So, take a deep breath. Interpersonal, wavering, desperate, unexpected, and catastrophic. Those are just five types of stories about how Jesus changes people. There's plenty more if you read the New Testament. And maybe you caught shades of your own story or your own personality in one or more of those. 
What do all these have in common? Three quick principles, and then I'm gonna give you five tips. First thing that they have in common is there's no one size fits all for a faith story. (laughs) There's no one size fits all faith story. What that means is that no one comes to God without Jesus, right? Jesus is clear about that. There's not multiple ways to God. No, 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 there's one way and it's him. But everybody comes to Jesus in different ways. What that means is my story is not your story. Your story is not my story. There's no one size fits all. We've all got different backgrounds and cultures and weaknesses and strengths and wounds. And you're not getting to the Father without Jesus, but you're not getting to Jesus without a story. Here's the key. Point number two, honesty. You can't fake a faith story. You don't get one from your parents you don't get a faith story by showing up at church or giving money to a great thing. That's not, that's not how you have faith. Those are the fruits of faith. If it's not yours, it's not real. And so don't tell me what they taught you to say sometime along your journey. Tell me about you. Tell me about your sufferings, your sin. Tell me about your Savior. Third thing they all have in common Jesus is always the hero. Don't you love that one? If you read every story in the New Testament, somebody coming to the Lord, they all have this in common. Jesus makes the difference. It wasn't, I used to be bad, but I. Whatever follows the I is wrong. (laughs) I used to be this, but I. Christ, that's the difference. That's a faith story. If your story pivots on I, something you did to fix yourself, you don't have a faith story. All you have is personal moral reformation, which is not the same thing. So how do you tell your faith story? Let me give you a couple of quick tips and I'll back off the gas a minute. First, be honest about your BC self. Here's what I mean. When you downplay your sinfulness, you downplay the greatness of the Savior. You and I, we are great sinners. I'd love to tell you about it if you wouldn't lose all your respect for me. We're great sinners. Good news of the gospel says we have a greater Savior. When Paul says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what he means is we are all in the same boat and that boat has a giant hole in the middle of it and we're going down fast. And some of us in that boat are panicking. Some of us are crying. Some of us are finger pointing and blaming others. Some of us are trying to patch up that hole with whatever we can find in the boat. But the truth is we don't need to fix the hole in the boat. What we need is a rescuer. (laughs) And so part of telling your faith story is to be honest about your BC self. You were not that good just because you didn't kill anybody or cheat on your spouse or whatever. No, we are worse than we would ever give ourselves honest verbalization to commit. (laughs) We are that bad. But Jesus is that much better. All you're doing when you downplay your sinfulness is preserving a reputation that doesn't matter anyway. So be honest about your BC self. Number two, be sure that you trust Christ. I'm not saying be sure that you are good or that you are behaving. Jesus did not die so that you could behave. He died so that you can be new. Be sure that you trust Christ. Um, My personal faith story 
just me, Brandon, um, doesn't have a very clear starting point. And um, I used to wrestle a lot with that because I wanted to have like November 7th. I was in the ditch with a needle in my arm and like I didn't have that. <laughs> and I used to wrestle with that because it created some ambiguity in me. And then um, somebody said something to me once that was profoundly helpful and I'll share it with you in case your faith story is back there and it's a little foggy and you can't name the date, the time, the aisle you walked, the prayer you prayed or any of that. It doesn't matter when you trusted Christ, it matters that you trust Christ now. And so if you can't pinpoint the date, if you have that as part of your story, great. But if you don't, it doesn't matter when, it matters that. The question is, are you right now trusting Christ for salvation? Do you acknowledge right here in this place that your BC self was a wreck and that you understand that because of our sin, my actual real sin, that God in his white hot holiness is justified to send me to hell for eternity, but Christ, the gift of God's goodness, Christ paid for my sins on his cross so I could have hell canceled, heaven guaranteed. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. If you're right now here saying, I guess so, I hope so, I think so, that means you're not. <laughs> And so let me urge you, you need to be as convinced as the sufficiency of Christ to handle the weight of your sin as you are the chair that you're sitting on can handle you. And if you're not sure, gosh, shore that up. I'd love to talk with you. Anybody here would love to talk with you. Consider the claims of Christ. Third, ask, is this personal? I alluded to this earlier. Um, here's the thing about the Christian faith. You're not born into it. You're not baptized into it. You don't earn belief by going to church. You don't earn God's favor by giving money. You don't get to heaven because you tried really hard or because you're good. Because you can't try hard enough to be good enough, ever. So stop. <laughs> Give up. <laughs> this is the gospel. Not that everyone will be saved, but that anyone can be saved. And so the question that I have to ask you is, is Jesus your savior? I know he's mine. I know he's a savior. He's the savior. I know that because it says it here. And I know he's mine. Is he yours? Have you said me? He's mine. That cross was for me. And if the answer is yes, you walk out this door and you get hit by a bus, man, you're headed to glory. But if the answer is no, or I think so, or I don't know, you're still stuck in your sin. And so let me urge you, consider the claims of Christ. Fourth, show and tell. <laughs> show and tell. Second grade, Greentown Elementary School was awesome. Why? Show and tell. My favorite part, I got to stand up and speak in front of people. <laughs> What is show and tell about? I hope they still do it in schools. I don't know. Show and tell, here, here's all it is. Here's this thing I love. I want to tell you about it because I want you to love it too. That's all show and tell this. Here's where we lose it. We think evangelism is a presentation. It's not. Evangelism is this. Here's this thing I love. I want to talk to you about it because I want you to love them too. Evangelism is not a presentation, it's an introduction to a person. When the first Christians in the early church decided that they wanted to change their world for Christ, they didn't hang up a shingle outside and said, spiritual conversations inside, please knock. 
They went out and they just did show and tell. It's basically what I do for 40 minutes every Sunday morning. Like, here's this thing I found about Jesus. It's amazing. I just want to tell you about it. Do you love him? You want to talk about what he's doing in your life? Is he doing anything in your life? You don't have to get it all right. But it has to be sincere. Number five, practice makes powerful. Everybody's heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. The truth thing is, when it comes to a faith story, there is no such thing as a perfect story. The best stories are the sloppy ones, the ones with loose ends, the ones that don't quite resolve yet, this side of heaven. Nothing's perfect except Jesus. So how do you practice your faith story? I'm gonna give you a very clear thing, couple things to do. If you're married here today, I'm gonna dare you. You ready? I don't know if preaching is daring people to do stuff, but I feel like it is today. I'm gonna dare you by the end of this week, if you're married, sit down with your spouse and tell them your faith story. I'm shocked as a pastor how many people don't know those kind of things about their spouse. And so if you're married, I dare you, end of the week, you got six days. Tell them what Jesus is doing in your life. How did you meet him? Which one of those stories is kind of like yours? Do you have a different story? How did you find him? What is he doing in your life? Sit down and talk about it if you're married. If you're not married, find a friend. Buy him a cup of coffee. Go take the person that you trust more than anybody else in your life, maybe a friend that you've known for decades, and just say, hey, can I just tell you something? This is really weird for me because maybe we've never had this part of our relationship before and we, maybe we've never talked about these things but I want to buy you a cup of coffee and I want to tell you about something and then just sit there over a latte and do show and tell for a little bit if you're a parent holy smokes you want to talk about vulnerability talk about your faith story some night over dinner Tell your kids how you met the Lord and what he's done for you, what he saved you from. You want to know the secret to telling your story. The power of a faith story does not lie in its perfection. The power of a faith story lies in its sincerity. Is it sincere? Band's going to come out in just a bit and I'm going to pray. When the world wants to know about God, I'm not sure if this is a new thing or not, but these days, when the world wants to know about God, they don't read the Bible. What do they read? Christians. Let's pray. God, I am struck by, uh, just in this moment, your sovereignty that there is a room here full of several hundred people, each one with their own story, and you are God over every one of them. You are walking us through our life. You are helping us to understand what you're doing, what you're up to, how you are forming us and fashioning us and making us. For those listening online, Lord, watching on a phone, sitting in on a couch in front of a TV, Lord. Same deal. We are a collection of stories that apart from you make absolutely zero sense, but with you, God, our stories can turn out well because you are at the center of them. You are the hero. Lord, give us boldness in these days.
Help us to see ourselves not as we are or how the world has made us or what we'd like to believe about ourselves, Lord, but help us to see us as you see us. Lord, we just say thank you for Jesus. Without him, we'd be hopeless. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the hope that we have. We will follow you anywhere. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.